0: So what is it that comes to mind when you think of Judgment Day? When you think of the Day of Judgment, what types of images, what types of pictures come to mind? Uh, For me, growing up, that idea of Judgment Day sounded a lot like Doomsday. Uh, In fact, for many of you, if you just ask the average person on the street or maybe even in this room, hey, what is the the picture that comes to mind when you envision Judgment Day? Uh, Most people in our city would probably picture something like this, Um, this is a typical idea of Judgment Day. In fact, I got this image by getting on Google and just typing in Judgment Day or the Day of Judgment, and hundreds and hundreds of images like this came up where it was uh, this terrorizing day where the gods or God would step in and he would kind of uh, terrorize humanity and, and it would be chaotic and, and destructive. And that's honestly what a lot of people think when they think of the end of the world, when they think of the day of judgment that God is going to bring. It's, it's commonly that. But what if that's actually not the way that the Bible talks about the day of judgment? What if there's actually another way that, that Jesus gives this this idea that's completely different than our cultural perspective of what will happen when Jesus returns? That's the question that I want you to think about when we read this passage in Matthew 25. We're going to start in verse 31, and I'm going to take you all the way through the end, because there's something that happens here that will shape the way that we think of Jesus coming back and the conversation that he wants to have with you and I when he does return. So, chapter 25, we're going to wor- read the words of Jesus, verse 31. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The Son of Man, that's another way that the Bible talks about Jesus. So when Jesus returns, he's going to sit on a throne. Verse 32, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I'll just pause there for just a minute. If you didn't grow up on a farm, you probably aren't sure what Jesus is talking about. Uh, what What shepherds would do is they would have sheep and goats in the same flock and it's difficult to tell uh, what is a sheep and what is a goat when you're just watching them out in the flock, out in the field. So what a shepherd would do at nighttime is he would bring them in and he would sit down and he would separate the sheep and he'd separate the goats and they would sleep in different places and eat in different places. I'm not exactly sure why that was the routine, but that was the routine uh, each night. So Jesus says, when I come back, uh, I'm going to gather all people before me and I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats like a shepherd would. Verse 33, And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is Jesus sharing a story in parabolic form of what will happen when he comes back. This is a story about justice and mercy. And listen, this is crazy. Culturally, we see the the day of judgment as doomsday, the day where God comes to terrorize humanity. But what Jesus says is he flips that on its head and says, when I come back, The first conversation that I want to have is how did you treat those who are poor and marginalized and vulnerable in society? That's the conversation. Far from terrorizing humanity, he wants to check in on those who are most vulnerable and those who are most poor and those who are most in need. So here, what, here's what I want to do. I want to just pull out three things for you that uh, I, I think are just incredibly profound about this passage, uh, and, and we'll dig in. And, and this is the first. The first is the shocking importance of justice and mercy. The shocking importance of justice and mercy. Isn't it shocking a little bit that this is the conversation Jesus wants to have first, Right, like, like not about how you treated your spouse, not about uh, various ways of how you raised your kids and all these, like the, the first thing that Jesus wants to talk about as he gathers people together is, how did you treat those who are poor? Did you take care of them? Did you step into the most vulnerable in society and provide for them? Because if you didn't do it for them, then you didn't do it for me. And it's so incredible, it's so close to the heart of God that this is the basis of him separating the sheep from the goats, this is the thing that makes them different from each other. Now, he, here's the question that a lot of well-meaning Christians have when they get to this passage. I know I had this when I read it first, and I've had it as I've read it a few times. Is, is Jesus really teaching here that if we do enough good, and if we serve the poor and, and, and work at a food kitchen, uh, then, then, or a soup kitchen rather, then we've checked all the right boxes and we could receive the love and mercy of God. Is that what Jesus is teaching, that we're saved by what we do? And the answer is no, that's not. And let's just remember, this is only one story in the entire book of Matthew. There's 28 chapters, and we're only in one little section. So this isn't the entire theology of the New Testament and what it says about salvation inside of a story. It's just one story. But here's the big idea, and you've you got to get this, that you and I are saved by grace, period. We're saved by grace, but, new sentence, were saved for works." Now, what, what do I mean by we're saved by grace? Here's what I mean. If you came in to this room this morning and you feel the weight of addiction, if you feel the weight of sin and shame and guilt, and if you feel like you can't get your life together, rather than you being someone that God couldn't love, you're the very types of people that God loves. And he doesn't love you because of what you do and all the ways that you clean up your act and, and turn over a new leaf and try really hard and all the moral commitments that you make. He loves you as you are, even when you were dead in sin. And Jesus on the cross, he came and he lived the life that you could live. He died the death that you deserve to die. He rose again from the dead. So you're saved by grace, not by what you do. However... When you truly receive the grace of God, when that becomes a resident reality inside of your soul, something begins to shift and change, and you go from someone that is a recipient of grace to someone that's also a dispenser of that very grace of God to other people in your life. I love the words of Craig Blomberg. He's a guy that wrote an excellent commentary called Interpreting the Parables, and he says, Jesus doesn't teach That everyone, irrespective of their faith commitments, who performs such works is saved. But, listen to this, that everyone who is saved through allegiance to Him performs such works. It's interesting, isn't it, in Matthew 25, that the people that are classified as the sheep, the ones that serve the poor, they're shocked. Lord, when? When did we serve you? When did we take care of you? When did we provide for you? And Jesus' response back is, well, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. In other words, they're not people that are trying to earn the love and mercy of God. They're people that have already received it, and this story is the natural outworking of that in their lives. Recipients of grace always lead to dispensing that same love and care for the poor that Jesus has shown towards us. So here's the big idea, and this is just shocking. This is Like I'm not overstating it when I say this is a startling passage because the main idea that Jesus is communicating in this parable is this, that you do not have a relationship with God if you do not have a relationship with the poor that's marked by justice and mercy. Let me say that one more time. You do not have a relationship with God if you do not also have a relationship to the poor that is marked by justice and marked by mercy. This is really what this parable is about. Now, here, here's a question. Like, is that just in Matthew 25? Like, is that just a random story in the Bible and the rest of the Bible teach something different? Absolutely not. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation, I wish we had time to walk you through so that you could see the entire story of the Bible and specifically the heart of God towards the poor and towards the most oppressed in society, right? It's an interesting, isn't it? In Genesis, like right after God deals with Adam and Eve's sin, the first thing that he does is he gives them pants, Right, So now we see the heart of God. It's not just I care about your souls, but I also care about the physical side as well. But I want to take you specifically to another passage in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 58. You don't need to turn there unless you want to, but we're going to have the words up on the screen. I want to read this text because in many ways, this is uh, kind of a window into the heart of God. This functions like an Old Testament version of the sheep and the goats. So here's what God says to a guy named Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that spoke to people on behalf of God. Uh, Here's what he says. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. And then look at what he says. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, They delight to draw near to God. So what's good about these people? Well, they seek God daily, not just on the Sabbath. This is something that daily they're seeking God. They actually delight to know the will of God for their lives. What do you want for us, God? They delight to know his ways, Uh, It even says that they're passionate to draw close to God. They delight to draw near to God. So these are people that really do love God. They want God. They want a right relationship with God. They want to know what God thinks about their life. They delight in Him. But he says at the very beginning of the passage, I want you to declare to them their sin. So what is it that he's probing and pushing on because they're doing a lot of things right? Well, it goes on to say this in chapter 58 verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? So they're even like fasting and doing these religious exercises. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Look at verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. This is a group of people, they have so much right. They love God and they're serious about him and they want to follow him and they want to know his ways and they want to they have his will for their lives and yet they had a profound neglect for the poor and for the oppressed and what God says is you, can't, you do not have a relationship with me if you don't also have a relationship to the poor marked by justice. He says something similar in another place, in Zechariah, is another prophet. God says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, uh, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned, was it for me that you fasted? In other words, when you did these religious exercises and duties, when you showed up to church and performed the, the exercises and religious duties, why'd you do that? Was it for me? Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. He says, yeah, don't, you're fasting, but you're neglecting a key part of who I am and what I'm about. Here's what's so profound to me about God. This is so near and dear to his heart that you actually don't even have a relationship with him if you don't have a relationship with the poor marked by justice. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to travel to Houston and preach at a church there in downtown Houston. Right before I got up, one one of the pastors said, hey, how do we introduce you? i said just say i'm one of the pastors at frontline church or say i'm i'm a husband to hillary and i'm a papa to evie and eleanor and the reason why i say that is because that's really who i am that's what i do if you want to know enough about me like that's that's really it right there Uh, i love my wife i love my kids and i'm a pastor at frontline church that's that sums up kind of what i do on planet earth And here's what's so crazy, like if you think of your Facebook page or your Twitter profile or whatever, you kind of have your bio, here's who I am, here's what I do. Well, this is God's bio, if you will, in Psalm 68, verse 5. I love this, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God and his holy habitation. You want to know about God? There's a lot of things that you need to know about God, but one of the things that's near and dear to his heart is he's father of the fatherless and protector of widows widows in fact this is so shocking that god chooses not to identify himself with the people at the very top he chooses to identify himself with the people at the very bottom matthew 25 he says hey if you took care of the poor then you took care of me to take care of the poor is to to serve me to if you clothe the naked then you actually clothe me he's identifying himself with the most vulnerable in society he does it all over the bible that two more, Proverbs 30, 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, right? You, you oppress a poor man, you're actually insulting God, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to who? The Lord, and he will repay him for his deed, this is how important it is to God that on the day when he returns, the first conversation that he wants to have is did you care for the poor? Did you care for the oppressed and the widow and the orphan? And did you take care of those who are most vulnerable in society? And that is the defining difference between the sheep and the goats. It's shocking. Can I just ask you this question? If, if you walked away from Christianity and you're in this room, did you know when you walked away from Christianity, that this was at the very core of what it is? Let's ask it this way. When, when you became a Christian and decided to follow Jesus, did you know that this was at the very core of what it is to be a Christian and follow Jesus? It's a profound care for the poor and for the needy and for the oppressed. So that's the shocking importance. Here's the second thing I want you to see is if that really is true, if it's that big of a deal and it's all over the Bible that God has a deep concern and he, he actually identifies with people at the very bottom, if that's true, what is justice and mercy? What does it look like played out in our lives? And, and here's the problem with asking that question is we're all Americans and we have a hard time really agreeing on what justice looks like. In fact, there's a political philosophy professor at Harvard University named Michael Sandel, and he wrote a book called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? He's got this great class that he does on it. It's kind of a really well-known class, and he wrote this book on it. What he does in this book is he takes different ideas of justice that people have and he deals with the pros and cons of all of them. What he says at the very beginning of his book is the problem is everybody believes they're on the right side of justice. Everybody believes that they're fighting for justice and they're fighting for these things but we can't actually agree on what they are. Uh, Both the politicians and the public have different visions of what it is to be people of justice. So what's right? Well here's what's interesting, if you read through that book or if you listen to his lectures, what you'll realize is that the Bible has a more robust and bigger picture of what justice is than what our world currently has or what our culture currently has. Because it doesn't just pick one or two of these things, but actually all of the things that Michael Sandel deals with are are found in the Bible. He holds all of them together. So if you just ask the question, what is the biblical vision of justice? Uh, th- there are probably a lot of ways we could describe this, but I'll just quickly give you three things that it means. Uh, here's the first one. Equal dignity. Equal dignity. Here's a, a verse in Leviticus twenty-four twenty-two: You shall have the same rule for the sojourner as for the native, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, treat the, the refugee the same way that you would treat the, the citizen. Now, that may not sound profound to you that you and I should, should look at all people of all ethnicities and all cultures and all socioeconomic statuses with dignity. You may think, well, that's a very secular Western way of seeing the world. But actually, that came from the Bible. It came from the heart of God. That we didn't have this idea until God came and said, no, I want you to treat the refugee the same way that you treat the the citizen, this is profound. He's saying treat everybody with dignity. So if you're asking what's the question, Uh, how do we we have justice, what does it look like? It's treating all people of all ethnicities and all races, men or women, young or old, sick or healthy, all over the map, regardless of your culture, with profound dignity as image bearers of God. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing the Bible means when it says justice. It's not just equal dignity, it's a special concern for the most vulnerable in our society. And this is where it gets uncomfortable for us as Americans because we love the idea of treating everybody with respect and dignity, don't we? But the second that you talk about doing for some uh, what you wouldn't do for all people, that feels very kind of un-American right? It's like, I, I don't know about that, but this is what it means to be, to, to walk in justice as the Bible describes it. It's having a special concern for vulnerable populations. Here, here's the idea here. In Matthew 25, Jesus doesn't say, hey, enter into the kingdom because you treated all people with dignity. Enter into the kingdom because you, you weren't a racist and you treated people of different cultures and different socioeconomic statuses with respect, and with honor. No, he says, you took care of the poor. There were needy people in your city, and you met their needs. There were hungry people, and you fed them. There were naked people, and you clothed them. You did for some what you normally wouldn't do for all. You had a special concern for the most vulnerable populations. Another verse, Proverbs 31. Listen to this. In verse 8, God says, open your mouth for the mute For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. God is saying, speak up for those who can't speak. Have a voice for the voiceless. Isn't it interesting that in this verse he doesn't say, hey, speak up for the rich and for the wealthy. Defend the rights of those that have wealth and power and influence. No, it's defend the rights of the poor and the oppressed. It's do for some what you wouldn't do for all people, it's profound. And then here's the third way that the Bible describes justice and having a heart of mercy towards people, and this one is really, really, really hard for me. It's radical generosity. Radical generosity. So it's not just equal dignity, treating people with respect and honor as image bearers. It's not just like having a special concern for most vulnerable populations and those who are oppressed, but it's even beyond that. It's having radical generosity as the people of God. Can you think with me about how costly it was for the sheep in Matthew 25, right? He says, there, there were naked people and you clothed them. How, how did you cl- clothe them? With your own clothing, you gave that to them. You gave your possessions away. You, you've visited the sick and, and those who are in prison. That takes time and energy to travel to, to the sick. It's inconvenient, and you did it. Uh, you fed the poor. How? With, with your own money and resources, you purchased food and gave it to those who are hungry. This is a costly thing that Jesus is calling us into. And here's the problem. As Americans, we just don't like that. We love to be generous when it's in our own definition of what generosity is, and we love, to be, uh, we love to be people of justice when it is really convenient to do so. Like, here's an example of that. Uh, last Sunday, when I was in Edmond, they don't have a boxcar coffee shop in Edmond, unfortunately, so I had to go to Starbucks Coffee, and uh, I, there, I was there, I got a cup of coffee, and then I also got like an $11 bottle of water. Um, Really, really cheap. So uh, I got this bottle of water. It's called Ethos Water. And on the side of it, I, I was reading the side of it, and it says, for every, do- for every bottle of water that you buy, um, Starbucks donates five cents to developing countries to help them get clean water. And I thought, that's the way that we like to do justice as Americans, isn't it? I buy an $11 bottle of water. Five cents of it goes to some poor people that need it, right? I feel great now. I've done my part. I buy an $80 pair of shoes and I get that and then that same pair of shoes that cost about $5 to make gets shipped off somewhere else to a kid that needs it. That's great. I'm a a person of justice. That's how we do it. We love to, to do this when it's convenient and easy and it doesn't cost us that much. But unfortunately, what Jesus is calling us to is something very different. Radical generosity. Like, here's what he says in Isaiah 58. Share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor, where? In your house. When you see the naked, cover him. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh. Pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Pour yourself out for the hungry, As an American, here's how we think. Uh, I have wealth, I have possessions, I have status. Yeah, the Lord may have done a few things, but really, I did all the work to get that. Here's how God thinks. If you have wealth, if you have possessions, if you have influence and status, yeah, you may have done a few things, but basically, I gave all of that to you. That's why he can actually say, it's unjust to not be generous. Tim Keller says this, the only way God could say that it's actually unjust to not share what you have is if ultimately all that you have is his gift. God is calling us into this way of living And that might not fit your political party. Can I just tell you, it doesn't fit any political party. It's transcendently from Scripture. And God is saying that when I return, the conversation I want to have is how did you treat the poor? How did you care for the needy? Did you clothe the naked? That is the defining difference between the sheep and the goats. Here's the last thing, and I'll be quick. How do we become people of justice and mercy? If It's so big of a deal to God. And if it's the defining conversation that he wants to have when he returns on Judgment Day, and it's really inside of his heart, how do we become people of justice and how do we become people of mercy? Well, can I just tell you what the solution is not? The solution is not, ultimately, better policies, although that's really, really important. The solution isn't better governmental systems and structures, although that really matters. By the way, if you're here and that's your job, you work in the government, hey, we need better systems. We need better structures, and our prayer and hope is that you'd be formed by Scripture to help fight for this, right? It's not more education, although we need more education. It's not a matter of raising more awareness. Listen, none of those things are the ultimate solution for us to become people of justice and mercy. Why? Because it's not that we don't know what to do as a people, We know what to do, we just don't want to do it. Do you know what you call that? A heart problem. The reason why we're not people of justice and mercy is because you and I have a heart problem. It's deeper than a policy or a structure or a system, it's in here. Um, We had some friends in from Texas uh, stay at our house yesterday. They They didn't sleep there, but they came over and spent the day. And my kids had a really, really hard time sharing their toys. My five-year-old and three-year-old are incredibly awesome and incredibly selfish, <laughs> and uh, and they were like, you know, running to me. He's playing with my toy. She's pushing this or whatever, and, and my response to them, I got down. And I said, listen, like, all that you have is a gift. Everything in this house is a gift. You don't own anything. All that you have, I bought for you, right? It, those are my toys, so I want them to play with my toys. You need to be Generous. And then I could almost feel the Lord like whispering and nudging into my soul, like, You're not five years old anymore, and you're not three years old anymore, and your toys look different, but you're just like them. <laughs> you're just like them. Like, I have new toys, different things, and it's mine. It's my house. It's my car. It's my bank account. It's my... And then you can just lovingly feel the, the nudge of the Lord. No, it's mine. And I gave it as a gift. Share your stuff. How do we do it, though? Well, here's how. People with hard hearts have those hard hearts softened when they think about all that Jesus has done for us. If you're wondering who am I in the story, the sheep and the goats, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Here's that's an important question. You should ask that question, but here's here's another question. There are other characters in the story. There is the poor and the weak and the needy and the sick and the imprisoned. And if you ask the question, in the story of the Bible, which character am I? You are the poor. You are the sick. You are the needy. You are the vulnerable population. You are the one that had no righteousness, no good in yourself. And rather than God just kind of bypassing you and walking by and saying, well, that's your own mess. You've, you created the mess. Lie in your own bed. He, in mercy and justice and love, he steps out of the comfort and safety and wealth of heaven. And he enters our world. And Jesus lives for us. And then on the cross, he literally gives all of his life in our place. Jesus on the cross is strung up there naked so that those of us who are naked in sin could be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus, he cries out on the cross that he's thirsty so that you and I could, could drink deeply of the love of God. He was treated like a common criminal so that those of us who are enslaved to sin could be set free and have freedom. <laughs> this is, how could I with a hard heart look at that and, and be the same Something's gotta change, something's gotta shift. That's not how I earn his love, but how could I earn that love and not be a different person? That's what God does. And so the answer is not duty, but it's just it's the beauty of the cross, isn't it? It's resting and looking at and and experiencing all that he's done. And we go from hard-hearted, selfish people to people that are just absolutely floored and absolutely changed. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the heart of Christianity. If you have a heart for the poor, if you have a heart for justice, why not reconsider Jesus who makes that reality make sense? He's inviting you to himself today to receive all that he has as a gift. If you are a follower of Jesus in the room, you gotta do something with this story, It's got to change the way you live. It's got to change the way you function. It's got to mess you up a little bit. Now, there's a healthy and an unhealthy way to do introspection. The unhealthy way is to go, have I checked all the right boxes? Have I done all the right things? That's not healthy. The healthy thing is to gaze at Jesus and say, okay, you've done this. Now, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Where do you want me to live? How should I serve? How should I give? And this is why, by the way, we started the 405 Center is because we wanted to train people in our city how to be missionaries and actually reach people with the good news of Jesus and push back the darkness as we demonstrate what life looks like inside of the kingdom of God. So if you want to connect, if you are like, I want to do that, how do I do that? We have ways. There's a table out there. It says serve more on the front of it. Uh, Serve more is one of our key partners. You can do all kinds of uh, incredible things in the city to push back darkness and have opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with people. I want to encourage all of you just to go back and sign up and check it out. This is what we do in our community groups. This is why we gather together throughout the week in community groups because not one of us can do this on our own. We do this in groups right? So this is what Jesus is calling us into, and, and, and I'll close with this. We are getting this building not so that we can create this awesome cruise ship for Christians where we're served and we're taken care of and we're fat and having a great time, We are getting this facility because we believe that Jesus has called us to be like an aircraft carrier so that we can just use this building as an outpost of the kingdom to launch mission off into our city. We want to see South OKC and Moore and Norman reached with the good news of Jesus and for darkness to be pushed back.